Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 5. So, New Testament book of Galatians chapter 5. And uh, if you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, we want you to be able to follow along with us so our, our ushers have a copy of the Bible so you can slip your hand up and, and we'll make sure you get one so you can follow along. And if you are visiting with us this morning, uh, we are working through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. So we're going to be working through the text this morning. We want you to be able to follow along with us as we go through it. So here, Galatians chapter 5, and starting in verse 19, Paul gives us here uh, quite an ugly list, a list which he calls the works of the flesh. He tells us, starting in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And what I want you to understand as we get started this morning is that the list that we find here was actually a pretty normal description of first century life. This is a pretty normal description of first century life. This list actually describes the way that many, if not most, people lived in the first century Roman world. This was the the everyday culture that surrounded these Galatian Christians, the people to whom Paul is writing. This was their normal world. Let me explain why I say that. The first three items here on Paul's list, they have to do with common the common Roman approach to, to sexuality. Look at the list. Paul first mentions sexual immorality. And that translates the Greek term porneia, a term which originally described sex with a prostitute, but eventually came to describe any kind of sex outside of marriage. And then to that he adds the word impurity, which translates a term that means uncleanness. And, and Paul often used this term, impurity or uncleanness, when listing sexual sins. You see, here's the thing. With sexual sin, there is a a defiling, a a soiling nature to it. And and what I mean by that is with sexual sin, you are taking something, something that God intended for good, that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife, and you are letting sinful desires instead of God's good design shape your use of it. So you are defiling. You're you're rubbing sin all over something that was intended for good. You're making it unclean. So that's the word that Paul uses here. And then the third term that Paul uses, which the ESV translates here, is sensuality. If you have a a New King James Version this morning, you see it uses the word lewdness. If you have the NIV, they use the word debauchery. And and what all those terms are trying to communicate is the idea of a behavior... A way of behaving that that spurns the social norms. A way of behaving that that delights in breaking all of the cultural taboos. This is a word that describes going beyond the accepted limits, the accepted rules. And here again, Paul's attaching this term to sexual behavior. And and the reality is that in Roman society, uh, it was kind of the cultural norm to go beyond the cultural norm when it came to sexuality. That was, that was kind of par for the course. Uh, they delighted in pushing boundaries. They, they reveled in pushing the sexual limits. Again, debauchery. It was just par for the course in Roman society. And here's the thing. Don't, don't take my word for it. 
I want to share with you a, a quote from one of their own. So let someone of their own explain the common Roman approach. This is from Roman statesman and order Demosthenes. And he explains, listen, he says, we, we Roman men, listen to this, keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. So that was normal in that society. So we have mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of life, but we do have wives, so we can have legitimate children and then they can keep the home. That was normal in their society. Also in their society, especially in Greek culture, homosexuality was praised, especially homosexual acts between men and teen boys. It was thought to be sophisticated. In that culture, when you went to places of worship, the temples of the pagan gods, part of your worship practice often involved the purchase of a prostitute. So you would pay for a male or a female or a child prostitute, your choice, and then engage in illicit sexual behavior with them for the quote-unquote pleasure of the gods. And I share all that with you simply to let you know that Paul's opening three words in this list merely described normal Roman lifestyle. Normal Roman lifestyle. And the same can be said for the next two words in his list. Again, look at the text. The words idolatry and sorcery. Those practices, those were part of everyday life in the first century. Idolatry was pervasive in that culture. The, the guilds under which you worked, think, think modern-day labor unions, the guilds under which you worked, they all had gods. The places where you went and bought your food, they all had gods. On every street corner, in every marketplace, in every home, you would find these shrines everywhere. Set up to this or that god. All of life, all of life had to do with the worship of created things instead of glorifying the true creator of all things. And in that culture, you used the gods. The gods were were simply a means to an end. You want a better crop? You want a good job? You want to marry that guy and get pregnant and have babies? Well, then you needed the help of the gods. And this is where sorcery came in. It was using the power of the gods to accomplish your own ends, your own goals. And again, the point is, this was normal. This was normal in the Roman world. This was the approach from birth to death. This was their worldview. The gods were seen as a means that you had to use in order to get the ends that you wanted. Idolatry and sorcery were just standard operating procedures. And so was relational hostility. Relational hostility. The Roman world, as you study this in history, the Roman world was not an easy place to live. It was not an easy place to live. Life was brutal in the Roman world. Relationships with your neighbors, in your marriage, with your kids, they were all brutal. And Paul gives a list here that paints that picture well. Look at the text. Here he mentions enmity, or you could also translate that as hatred, strife, that is contentiousness, jealousy, fits of anger, that's, that's explosive rage, rivalries or selfish ambitions, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Now what you need to understand is that that was typical 
everyday life. Whether, whether you were a slave and, and they were everywhere in the ancient world, whether you were a slave being abused by your master, or you were a wife being beaten by your husband, or you were a citizen being, being extorted by the Roman military, or you were a member of the Roman Senate plotting the downfall of your political rival. This kind of relational hostility was the reality of everyday life in the first century world. Life was brutal. It was brutal. And to try to escape that everyday brutality, to try to cope with all of it, people in that culture embraced hedonistic celebrations. Here, look at the list. Paul's list concludes with drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Drunkenness. The the New Testament frequently mentions, you read through the New Testament, you see it frequently mentions drunkenness. And it frequently mentions it because that was a serious problem in the ancient world. People often used intoxication as a means to, to escape their everyday difficult realities. They would be given to wine. They would be addicted to alcohol. They would be consumed with trying to use substances in order to escape the pain of everyday life. And they also used wild pagan celebrations as a means of escape. That's the idea behind this word orgies in the ESV. Actually, the the Greek term that Paul uses here was originally used of the festal procession in honor of the pagan god Dionysus. So that's where this word came from. It was originally used of the festival, festal procession associated with this pagan god Dionysus. And he was the god of wine. He was the god of fertility. He was the god of ecstasy. Dionysus was his Greek name. Maybe you've heard him by his Roman name. Bacchus was his Roman name. And he was worshipped and he was celebrated in festivals that focused on excess. Excessive drunkenness, excessive sex, excessive feasting. He was celebrated through these wild parties. Kind of think like like our modern day Mardi Gras. They had these wild parties. And so this term came to describe those kinds of celebrations. Those excessive celebrations. And what I want you to understand is that those kinds of excessive celebrations, they were a high point in that culture. They were something that you looked forward to in that culture. They were something that you marked on your calendar in that culture. They were where you let off steam and escaped your everyday reality. But here, the Apostle Paul does not view them as a high point, as something to mark on your calendar. Instead, he tells us that they are an obvious work of the flesh. Again, look at the opening of this. Look at the opening of this. Paul writes, now the works of the flesh are what? What does he say? They're evident. Another way to say that is that they're obvious. He's saying it's a no-brainer here. All these actions come from the flesh. But but what is that? (laughs) What is the flesh? Well, we've been talking about this previous weeks. Let me just remind you. The flesh is that part of us that wants to trust what? Us. Wants to trust us. It's that part of me that wants to lean on my own understanding, to live according to my own rules, to follow my own desires, and to be my own sovereign. And here's what you really need to understand about the flesh. The flesh is that part of us that wants to trust us, but maybe even more important to point out, it's the anti-God part of us. It's the anti-God part of us. It's that part of our our fallenness that is opposed to God and to his ways. See, here's the reality. As creatures, 
made by our creator. That's who we are. God created us. Creatures made by our creator. Our creator gets to set the rules. Amen? Our creator gets to set the rules. He is the one who gives us our understanding. He is the one who tells us what we should do with our desires. He is the one who reveals the purpose for our lives. And he does all of that because as our creator, he is our sovereign, right? Amen? He is the sovereign. It's, we'll put it this way, it's his world we're just living in it. Amen? It's his world we're just living in. He is the king. But our flesh says, what? No. I want to be king. I want to be king. Our flesh says, no, I will use my body how I want to use my body. No, I will worship what I want to worship. No, I will treat my relationships how I want to treat my relationships. And that's how you end up with a list like this. (laughs) That's how you end up with a list like this. A list that describes a culture like this. But here, the Apostle Paul explains where it all leads. Look at the second half of verse 21. Second half of verse 21, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who practice such things, will what? What does he say? will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is black and white, right? Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, all of our fleshly rebellion against God has us outside of his kingdom, has us under his judgment. It has us awaiting his righteous wrath. And that was the reality of life in the first century world. And it's also a reality of life in our world today. This week I, w- I was thinking about this list. And I was thinking, what would Paul's list here look like if he wrote it in the 21st century? What would it look like if he wrote it in the 21st century? What would he say are the obvious works of the flesh in the 21st century? Sadly, I, I think our, our modern view of sexuality hasn't changed much from the ancients, Right? Our our approach in the 21st century actually mirrors much of what we see in the 1st century. However, instead of going to temples to purchase prostitutes, uh, we the people of the 21st century have a much easier approach. We just pull up images, videos on our computers, on our smartphones, on our 65-inch 4K TVs. And we watch people, people who are paid small sums of money to base themselves and become objects. Objects, and be careful how you do this, but if you study what happens to people who work in the porn industry, uh, their careers are short, and the toll upon their life is great. They end up destroying their lives in order to, quote-unquote, give us a few minutes of pleasure. Also in our culture, just like In Roman culture, we view sex and sexuality as something that we define. People in our culture argue that sexuality is fluid. They view it as just driven and defined, not by God, but by how I feel, by my desires. Sex has become all about using our bodies how we want, when we want, with whom we want. And our culture has actually become something that we worship. Amen? Amen? become something that we worship. 
But it's not the only thing in our culture that we worship. In the 21st century Pacific Northwest, we don't find shrines with little statues on every street corner like they did in the first century. But that doesn't mean we don't have an idolatry problem. doesn't mean we don't have an idolatry problem. Just look at our approach to recreation here in the great Pacific Northwest. Just look at our approach to entertainment. Just look at our approach to sports. And then just look at how all of those idols are dwarfed by our approach to money. Just like those ancient Romans, we have our idols. We have our idols and we try to use them as ends to our means. There's means to an end. I mean, just think about our materialism. You know, we make that an idol and money just becomes our sorcery. Our means to an end. We too have our idols. We too have our idols. But what about, but about our modern approach to relationships? Has that changed much? Again, look at Paul's list here. Do we ever see enmity, strife, jealousy in any of our relationships? Does anybody ever see that? Does ever characterize modern relationships? What about fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy? Just hop on Twitter, right? Just go on Facebook. Just turn on Fox News or CNN. We might not live in the brutal days of the Romans, but that doesn't mean that our relationships are any less fleshly. Amen? And what about our modern approach to escape? What about when life is really challenging and we are trying to find something to help us cope? Do people still turn to substances like they did in the first century? Sometimes it's not just a drink, it's the pills out of the bottle, right? Do people still embrace excess like they did with the festival of Dionysus? Of course. Sometimes it's excessive parties, but other times it's excessive gifts, excessive vacations, excessive houses, or just an excessive lifestyle. We try to turn to moments of excess in order to escape our moments of pain. So yes, we are not the first century Roman culture. But I'm sure that the Apostle Paul could come up with a pretty similar list describing 21st century culture. But here's what's really powerful about this text before us this morning. Into that fleshly first century world, a world where the things that we looked at in this list were normal, into that world came Christianity. Into that world came the gospel of Jesus Christ. Into that world came a message, a pronouncement that said, yes, you are a sinner outside of the kingdom of God. Yes, you have rebelled against the holy sovereign God of the universe. And he is righteously angry with you and your sinfulness. He is justly furious with you. And your abuse of the good things that he created, things like sex and relationship and celebrations. He is filled with holy indignation towards you for the ways that you, a mere creature, flaunt his gracious authority and corrupt his good gifts. Yes, you are a sinner under his righteous judgment, but from his grace, he offers you true, deep, real forgiveness 
Then in that first century fleshly world came this message that said, God offers to remove all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your condemnation, all of it as far as the east is from the west. Will he separate our sin from us? How often do the east and the west touch? (laughs) You get the psalmist metaphor, right? As far as the east is from the west. He offers you forgiveness of all of the rebellion that you ever have committed. Past, present, future. Every sin. He's going to wipe it all away. All of it. And as he forgives you, he promises not just to put you back to zero, but he will actually clothe you with righteousness. A perfect, incorruptible righteousness. He offers true forgiveness and true acceptance. You can be with him in relationship with him, the relationship you were created for, enjoying fellowship with him, constantly blessed by him, brought into his family, his own adopted sons and daughters forever. That's the proclamation. You can have all those things. But how? How? What must a person do? What works must a person do in order to earn such gracious forgiveness, to be clothed with such perfect righteousness, to be embraced by holy, sovereign God? What works must we do? The answer to that question is why the gospel is good news. Amen? You see, none of that forgiveness, none of that righteousness comes to a person through their own works, through their own effort. Instead, it all comes through the work of another. Through the work of another. The Christian gospel is not a message that says, God will forgive you if you work really hard to earn it. It's not a message that says, God will accept you if you first get your act together. Instead, it's a message that says, what you have failed to do, God did for you. Through the person and work of his son. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ lived the life we failed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead in order to show the world the work was finished. It's finished. And now, a person, any person, any person can be saved. They can know true forgiveness, true acceptance by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. This salvation is a gift we are given through faith in Christ's finished work instead of living a life of trusting in our own busted, broken, fleshly, fallen efforts. And that that gospel was preached. That gospel was the message that was preached in the first century culture. But here's what I want you to note this morning. When that message was preached in that first century culture, What quickly became apparent in that culture is that the gospel was not simply a new ideology. It was not just another quote-unquote religious philosophy. It was just not, not just another topic for discussion, another way of looking at the world, another humanistic view on life. I said what quickly became apparent in that culture is that the gospel, the Christian message, was a, is a transforming message. It's a transforming message. You see, people who truly believed that gospel were changed by that gospel. The gospel produced a different kind of people. Different kind of people. Produced the people that stood out 
in that culture. People who are, who are clearly different than what we see in this list here. Their, their approach to sex, their approach to worship, their approach to relationships and celebrations, they all look radically different than their culture. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It wasn't just that they kept sex inside of the blessing of marriage, which they did. And it wasn't just that they stopped going to pagan temples and worshiping pagan gods, which, again, they did. They did stop doing those things. And it wasn't just that their relationships with their neighbors and their spouses and their children drastically improved, which for many of them they did. And it wasn't just that their approach to alcohol or to celebrations drastically changed, which, again, it did. But the change witnessed in these Christians went so much deeper than any of those things. You see, through the gospel, their entire relationship with God was changed. They became his people, mark this, indwelt by his presence. They became his people and dwelt by his presence. Just like in the temple in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, took up residence within them. His holy presence filled their person. They lived in his power. They were led by his truth. And they walked in dependence upon him. And this became obvious to the culture around them. This became obvious. The difference became obvious. Lives were drastically changed. Brutal, lustful, idolatrous people began to become people characterized by love and joy. Peace and patience. They became people of kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They became people who looked like the second list that Paul gives here. A list that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Now look at the text here. The second list which we see in verses 22 and 23. It's the antithesis of Paul's first list. It's the antithesis. That first list was ugly. This list is beautiful. That first list was repelling. This list is attractive. That first list was shocking. But this list is glorious. Glorious. And notice how it begins. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first word? What is it? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So it begins, mark this, it begins with a different way towards others. A different way towards others. And that's what love is. Love is a different way towards others. Where, where our natural fleshly way is that we want to use people, right? We want to use them as means to our ends. That's what comes from the flesh. How can I use you? Love is the antithesis of that. At least the type of love that Paul speaks about here. Here to describe love, Paul uses the Greek word agape. And some argue that that word was actually invented by early Christians. Now that's not necessarily true. Uh, The word did exist before the time of Christ. But what is true is that early Christians took this rather unused and obscure word for love and they championed it as the key virtue of the Christian life. They, They took this term in the Greek language that was thought of as lowly. It was viewed as the lowly term among all the other Greek terms for love. And they elevated it to the crown jewel 
of words describing love. And they elevate it because this term agape describes a selfless love. A selfless love. In Paul's classic illustration of this word over in 1 Corinthians 13, he tells us, and you're familiar with this, but he says love, agape, is patient and kind. Love, agape, it doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. Listen to this. It does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love, this kind of love, agape love, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. And that kind of love is so praised by the Christians, the first Christians, because that kind of love is the love of God. Amen? That selfless love, that is the love of God. God, who who, though he needs nothing, he is completely self-sufficient, right? He didn't need to make us. And he definitely doesn't need to love us. He's completely self-sufficient, but he loves us anyways. And he does so not in order to get from us or to use us or to see us as a means to an end. But he loves us simply for our good. Simply for our blessing. Simply for our joy and our comfort. This kind of a love is a love that gives to those who've done nothing to earn it. A love that gives to those who've done nothing to earn it. It loves those who are unworthy of it. Those who will will not benefit us if we love them. We're not doing this to get for us. Yet we love them anyways. Agape is a selfless love. And it looks like It doesn't look like anything that we find out here in the world around us. It is the love of God that flows from the Spirit of God. It is His fruit, the Spirit's fruit produced in the life of a Christian. And it's the first thing that Paul says about this marked difference. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love. It begins with a different way towards others. But then right after that different way... Paul speaks of a different attitude. Look at the words he adds. Joy and peace. He adds joy and peace to his list. And what we're seeing here in these words, joy and peace, what we're seeing here is that instead of frustration and anxiety, instead of irritation and worry, instead of anger and fear, the Christian life is to be marked by joy and peace. Joy and peace. And it's to be marked by joy and peace because that is the attitude of our God. That's the attitude of our God. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. What's the presence of God like? In your presence there is fullness, fullness of joy. In God's presence there is fullness of joy. Our God is a God of joy, a God of settled, secure, truth-driven happiness. That's what joy is. Settled, secure, truth-driven happiness. He is not, his joy is not a temporal joy. You know, one riding on the outcome of this or that situation. Like, you know, he's hoping, he's up there in heaven, hoping everything breaks his way. No, not at all. His is the joy of one who is working all things, everything, after the purpose of his will. And his will is good, and it is glorious, and it is perfect, and it is unstoppable. So there's joy. 
Scripture also speaks of the peace of God, a peace which Paul says surpasses all understanding. Our God is a God of peace. Again, he, he isn't up in heaven frustrated and fretting. He's not freaking out because, oh, no, things have come off the rails. The world's out of control. He's not responding that way because guess what? The world isn't out of his control. Amen? At times it looks a little crazy, but it's all happening according to his plan. It's all under his good and sovereign will. And all things, everything is unfolding according to his good plan and purpose. And so because of that, the Christian relationship with this God and dwelt by this God, the Christian can and should, should be a person of joy and peace, just like our God. Joy and peace. That should be the attitude of every Christian. Paul tells us, he tells us in Romans eight twenty eight. you guys know this verse. He says, and we know, not we wish, not we hope, not, not we think it might work out this way. He says, and we know, for those who love God, so Christians, all things, all things, yes, all things, work together for good, for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, for Christians. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. And, and we struggle with this. We, we struggle to have faith in this, to believe this promise, to live like this is true. But this is reality. Everything in the life of a Christian is all aimed at and all working together for the very best for that Christian. Do you believe that? Can we get an amen on that? It is all working together for the very best for that Christian. Even though Christians will know struggles, even though Christians will know troubles and trials and pain, when you, when you came to Christ, if you thought you were coming to a pain-free life, that's not reality. Even though they know, will know and experience, even those Christians, we will know and experience all of those things, none of those things will be our undoing. None of those things will be our undoing. Instead, it's all part of God's glorious plan and his design for our very, very best. So the Christian rejoices. The Christian lives with peace. That's the attitude with which they approach life. God is in the heavens and all things are happening according to his will. And he has promised me that everything, everything that passes through his hands and into my life is ultimately working for my good. So I rejoice. I live with peace. I know who's on the throne. That's the attitude of the Christian life. And that attitude is to manifest in a different character. In, in a Christian life, you will see a marked difference. Paul here, talk, look at the text. He talks about patience and kindness, about goodness and faithfulness, about gentleness and self-control. And all of those things are to mark a Christian life. They are to be evident in a Christian life. This is the character. This is to be the character of a Christian. The character of a Christian. And we are to be that way. Those things are to mark our life because this is the character of our God. He is a patient and kind God. He is full of goodness and faithfulness. With him there is a glorious gentleness. And he is always, always in control. He's always in control. And as people in whom dwell the spirit of this God, we are to manifest that same character. Christians are to manifest his character. We are to manifest a holy life. 
And really, brothers and sisters, that's what this entire list is all about. It's all about a holy life. That's why Paul adds that no-brainer there. (laughs) Against such things, there is no law. And there is no law against those things because those things embody what's there in the heart of God's law. A holy life. You see, here's the thing. Holiness is not some cold, pious, nose-in-the-air, I'm-better-than-you approach to life. That's not holiness. Instead, holiness looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like a different way towards others. It looks like a different attitude towards life. It looks like a different character of person. It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It looks like the fruit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And here's the things, brothers and sisters, it looks obviously different, obviously different than the lifestyle of the world around us. It looks obviously different than the lifestyle of the culture around us. And that was evident. It was obvious in the first century. Let me pause for a moment this morning and just ask this question. Is that same difference obvious today? Is that same difference obvious today? In the first century, the Christian stood out. Oh, there's a Christian. The reality of their life was clearly... Counterculture. Again, we could walk through that list that Paul gives here. But what about our lives today? Are we demonstrating a spiritual difference from our culture? Do we even know how? Do we even know how? Are we living like those first Christians lived? Do our lives show a marked difference from the world around us? Or or can people even tell? People even tell that we're Christians. Is it obvious or are they oblivious? Well, as those of you who've been with us for the last few Sundays know, we've been working through this section of Galatians, specifically verses 16 to 25, and we've been looking at it under the heading of a spiritual life. And here Paul shows us what it looks like, what it's to look like for us to live as Christians, and it's to look like a spiritual life. Now, here in the text, Paul first introduces this idea of a spiritual life by giving us this command in verse 16. Look back in verse 16. He writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you're going to live differently. You will live differently, as we saw last Sunday, because you're living out of who you now are. True Christians have truly been born again. They've been born of the Spirit. They are now spiritually alive. They are indwelt by the Spirit. They have a spiritual life. And yes, we will still have and battle with the flesh. Paul makes that point loud and clear there in verse 17. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So there is opposition in us as a Christian. But as those who have truly been born of the Spirit, we have the Spirit of God now indwelling us, empowering us to live holy lives. And as I asked this question last Sunday, who's more powerful, your flesh or omnipotent God? We feel sometimes like it's this, but in reality, it's omnipotent God. So he dwells in us, empowering us to live holy lives. That's why Paul says here, look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
That's not Paul's argument for lawlessness among Christians. Instead, he's making the point that we are no longer under the old covenant with its external ways and condemnation. Now, we Christians have the blessing, uh, have been blessed with this new covenant reality of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, leading us to delight in God, to delight in his ways, to walk in his ways. And all of that produces an obvious difference. Obvious difference. We are not to look like that list that we see there in verses 19 to 21. Our lives are not to be characterized by the flesh. We are not to look just like our fallen culture. Instead, our lives are to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Our lives are to show a spiritual difference from our culture. But again, my question, are we demonstrating that difference? Let me ask the question this way. Are you demonstrating that spiritual difference? Do we even know how? Do we even know how? (laughs) Well, in our brief time remaining, (laughs) like, how long are we going to be here, Ryan? I got to preach a text. In our brief time remaining, let me just answer that question. How do we do this? Better said, let me me guide you through Paul's answer to this question. And what I want you to see is that Paul shows us that living a spiritual life, it looks obviously different because it involves obviously different relationships. It looks obviously different because it involves obviously different relationships. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Look at what Paul says in the two final verses of this section, verses 24 and 25. He tells us, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, who is he talking about there? Christians. Christians, that's his way of saying Christians. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here, Paul describes an obviously different relationship for the Christian with both the Spirit and the flesh. As a Christian, the reason for the obvious difference in our lifestyle is rooted in the obvious difference that we have with both the flesh and the spirit. You see, here's the reality of this world. The reality of this world is that we all come into this world, every one of us born into this world, with a certain type of relationship with the flesh and also a certain type of relationship with the spirit. What is that relationship like? Well, here it is. We're all born into this world. When we all come into this world, we are born in this world spiritually dead. We are all born in this world spiritually dead. We're all spiritually stillborn when we come into this world. And, and what I mean by that is that as we come into this world, we come to this world for, with no desire for God, no desire for his ways, no love for his truth. Our eyes are blind. Our ears are deaf. And our hearts are stone cold dead. Stone cold dead to the ways of the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 2, if we had time, we turn over there, but just listen. Ephesians chapter 2 explains this. Paul writes this. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Listen, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You see, when we came into this world, we didn't come into this world walking by the Spirit of God. Instead, we came into this world, we grow up in this world following the Spirit of this world. We're all 
coming to this world. We're, we're walking along in our bondage under the world system, following the Pied Piper of that system. Satan, the enemy of God. The one who Paul describes in Ephesians 2 as the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who rules the demonic forces of this world. And he uses them to influence the spiritual dead of this world. And here's the thing. Every Christian, every Christian used to be among those spiritually dead. And here's the other thing. If you have not yet embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're still among the dead. Probably not good for your self-esteem this morning to tell you that. But it's the truth. You're still among the spiritually dead. But here's the thing, in our deadness, there was something alive. In our deadness, there was something alive. You see, we were all born into this world spiritually dead, but alive in the flesh. And that's not a good thing. That's like something out of a horror movie. You know, there's a deadness, but there's something creepy living inside. That's the way it was. We came into this world with our flesh, with that anti-God part of us, alive and well. It was living and breathing and kicking and screaming. It was making its demands, and we were slaves to those demands. Again, Paul references this in Ephesians chapter 2. After saying that we're all born dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he adds this. Among who we all once, listen to what he says, all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, all of us, we all were once just living out of the desires of our flesh. We were creating lists, building these fleshly lists, just like Paul gives here in verses 19 to 21. We were building those lists. That's why we were outside of the kingdom of God. That's why we were under his wrath and judgment. That's why we were by nature children of wrath. We were spiritually then just living out of our flesh. But Paul says here now, We now have an obviously different relationship. We have an obviously different relationship to the flesh. Look again at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? What's our relationship like with the flesh? What does he say? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? What have we done? What does it say? Yeah, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a drastically different relationship, amen? That's a drastically different relationship. Instead of living by the flesh, living out of the flesh, as a Christian, you've crucified it. And here Paul gives us this past tense reality. You have crucified. It is past tense. It's a past tense reality. And it's a past tense reality because this is what happens the moment that you come to Jesus Christ. This is what happens the moment that you come to Jesus Christ. Those who are truly born again have been brought to the end of themselves. They see that they cannot, by by none of their works, they cannot save themselves. They see the folly, the absolute foolishness of building life all around themselves. They see the fearful danger of living out of the flesh, living as a rebel against heaven. And they truly surrender they surrender their attempt at sovereignty to the true sovereign jesus their savior and their lord they come to christ 
and they nail that old way of living to the cross. And with it, they nail its passions and desires. Turn our back on those things, its passions and desires. In a place of those things, the Spirit gives us new passions, right? New desires. New way to live. We delight in the truth. We delight in holiness. We desire to be with God's people. We delight in prayer. We delight in the word. New passions, new desires. And we live out of those desires. However, as we talked about a few weeks ago, there's still a battle. Amen? For three of us, there's still a battle. (laughs) There's still a battle. We still battle the flesh. But here's an important question. If we've crucified it, then why is there still a battle? Well, the answer to that is found in the nature of crucifixion itself. Was death by crucifixion an instantaneous death? No. It wasn't like death by guillotine or death by electric chair. Sentence of death, same. Sentence of death is the same. The criminal will still ultimately die, but the process is different. It's a slow, gradual, painful process. And it's the same way with this crucifixion of our flesh. The death of our flesh is a death in process. And brothers and sisters, we have to treat it as such. We have to treat it as such. What what do I mean by that? We have to see it nailed to the cross, dying that shameful death. And we have to remember why it's up there. Why is it condemned to the cross? Because it deserves it. Amen? It deserves it. Remember where it wanted to lead us. I mean, just look at Paul's list there in verses 19 to 21. It was leading us. It was leading us to destruction. It was leading us to ruin. It had us hostile towards God. It had us hostile towards one another. Remember why it's up there so we don't coddle it. We don't treat it like some cute little pet, some good friend. We just leave it alone to die its shameful death. Amen? And yes, it is painful at times. The flesh does not enjoy the process. Battle is difficult. The flesh is deceptive and surprisingly strong. It is constantly pulling at us, constantly calling to us, calling to us from that cross, asking us to give it some leeway, grant it a reprieve, give me a glass of water, let me down for a little bit so I can just take a break. But our relationship to it as Christians need to be different. Amen? Our relationship to it as Christians needs to be different. We don't need to heed its siren song any longer. Amen? It's not the master. It's not the master. We don't have to heed its siren song any longer. We have nailed it to the cross. And now we listen to a different voice. A new voice. A new song. We follow a new and loving master. We who have been born again through the gospel... We have an obviously different relationship now also with the Spirit. Our lives look different. Our lives look different. Not just because we have a different relationship now with the flesh, but also they look different because we have a different relationship with the Spirit. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And what you really need to understand here, brothers and sisters, is that Paul's if statement isn't a, if you decide to do this, this is how you then should do this. Instead, it's Paul simply making this logical argument. If this is true of you, if by the Spirit you have been made alive, if you've been born again, then this is how we're supposed to operate. 
It's just a logical connection. This is how we're supposed to operate. You need to keep in step with the Spirit. This is, this is the normal Christian life. This isn't just for missionaries or pastors or Christian professionals. This is the normal Christian life. This is how we are to live. Day in and day out as people who have crucified the flesh. We stop listening to its voice. And instead we listen to the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. But what does that actually mean? Sounds a little mystical, doesn't it? Keep in step with the Spirit. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? Well, we've actually been talking about it now for several weeks, but let me just summarize it again for you. It simply means living out of who you now are as a Christian. Living out of who you now are as a Christian. And our understanding of who we now are as a Christian is laid down for us where? Right here in the Word of God. Right here in the Spirit's book. He tells us, and we looked at this in detail last week, what it looks like to be born again and what it looks like to live as one born again. And he shows us in this book, again and again, in his book, the glory of Christ, the glory of his gospel. And he calls us, believe it, day in, day out, day in, day out. When you feel like you don't deserve grace, guess what? You don't deserve grace. (laughs) Believe it. Believe that Christ has done it all to save you. In his book, he shows us, he shows us what it looks like to walk in daily obedience. He he even supplies the strength, the faith, the ability to do so. The Spirit also affirms for us that God is our Father. He reminds us over and over again of our Father's love. He even teaches us how to cry out, Abba, Father. So he The Spirit in his book, he shows us, he shows us how to live out of who we now are as Christians. And here's the thing. As we do so, his fruit will follow. Here's the thing. It's his fruit, not our own efforts. You understand that? It's his fruit. It's not our own efforts. Our efforts is simply in keeping in step. (laughs) Our effort, and and, and in our effort, he even supplies the power to do this. But our effort is simply in living out of who we are. Just living out of who we are. It's listening to his truth instead of the flesh's call. Our effort is in believing what comes from the Spirit's book instead of heeding the flesh's voice from the cross. Brothers and sisters, just leave it up there to die. Amen? Just leave it up there to die. Stop listening to it. Instead, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live a life led by the Spirit. And living that spiritual life, you will see a marked difference. You will see a marked difference. Living a spiritual life looks obviously different because it involves obviously different relationships. We don't look like the world, and we don't look like the world. We look different because we have a different relationship to the flesh and a beautifully different relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do as we close our service this morning is is celebrate that difference. 
So what I'm gonna do is I'm actually read my closing prayer and have you follow along. And this prayer that I'm gonna read is uh, from the book, The Valley of Vision. It's a book, uh, a collection of Puritan prayers. And the one I wanna read this morning is, is one that I've been meditating on now for, for several weeks. And you can find it there. It's an insert actually in your bulletin. Looks like this. So go ahead and take that out. You probably thought, oh, I thought I was done with the bulletin, Ryan. So go ahead and take that out and just, just follow along as I, I read our closing prayer this morning. O Holy Spirit, as the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may our hearts be full of you. Vain are all divine purposes of love and redemption wrought by Jesus, except you work within, regenerating, making us alive by your power, giving us eyes to see Jesus, showing us the realities of the unseen world. Give us yourself without measure, as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches. We lament, we grieve our coldness, poverty, emptiness, imperfect vision, lazy service, prayerless prayers, praiseless praises. Keep us from grieving or resisting you. Come as power to expel every rebel lust, to reign supreme and keep us yours. Come as teacher, leading us into all truth, filling us with all understanding. Come as love, that we may adore the Father and love him as our all. Come as joy, to dwell in us, move in us, animate us. Come as light, illuminating the scripture, molding us into its laws. <clears throat> Come as sanctifier, body, soul, spirit, fully yours. Come as helper with strength to bless and keep directing our every step. Come as beautifier, bringing order out of confusion, loveliness out of chaos. Magnify to us your glory by being magnified in us and make us an aroma of your fragrance. May we truly live as people of the Spirit, filled by him, walking by him, keeping in step with him, so that the world around us truly sees the difference that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has made in our 